0: Genesis chapter 6 this morning is where we'll be in our continued study through this book of beginnings, the first book of the Bible. It's probably not news to tell you guys that our world is plagued by turmoil, plagued by corruption, plagued by strife. We live in a day and age where there's brutal regimes like North Korea who rule with an iron fist. We live in a day where there's terrorist organizations like ISIS or Boko Haram. Even in the last few days, we saw the horrible things that happened in Barcelona, evidence of evil at work in the world. There's drug cartels running amok in Mexico and South America. In the United States, we have Planned Parenthood's abortion mills continuing to profiteer off of the killing of babies. We have sex trafficking and white-collar crimes that fly under the radar. People don't see it as often, but it's still causing unbelievable damage to people's lives. And we could go on and on and on. Our world is plagued by turmoil, corruption, evil, and strife. You know, a lot of people struggle to understand how or why such evil could exist. Anytime there's a major crisis, anytime some, some horrible um, evil is uncovered and exposed, the world, we sit back and kind of pull our hair out and go, how could this happen? Who could do such a thing? Why would they do this? Last week, following the reprehensible events that happened in Charlottesville, where a white supremacist plowed his vehicle into a crowd of protesters, former President Barack Obama publicly tweeted a statement that became the most liked ever post on that popular platform. The most liked tweet ever. And what he did was actually simply quote the former president of South Africa, Nelson Mandela. Here's what he wrote. Nelson Mandela wrote this. This is what former President Obama posted. No one is born hating another person because of the color of his skin or his background or his religion. People must learn to hate. And if they can learn to hate, they can be taught to love. For love comes more naturally to the human heart than its opposite. As evidenced by the overwhelmingly positive response, I mean, a lot of people gave thumbs up to the statement. This statement is really an apt sum- summary of what most people's understanding of human nature is. That most people believe, or at least they want to believe, that deep down inside, people are really good. That deep down inside, people are naturally inclined to love. People may like that sentiment. But the trouble is, as we open the scriptures, it tells us a different story about human nature. In Genesis chapter 6, we find a very different picture being painted for us. Not that man is basically good deep down inside, but rather that mankind, all of us, are inherently corrupt. In Genesis chapter 3, as we saw a few weeks ago, sin entered the world through one man, through Adam. He and his wife Eve, they violated God's law. They took the fruit and they ate In Genesis chapter 4, we see that that sin was passed on to their descendants, that Cain killed Abel. Their immediate family was infected by this virus of sin, and the cycle of sin and death continues. We see it in chapter 5 in the genealogy that there's this ongoing cycle of death and the sin that accompanies it. When we get to Genesis chapter 6, we find that sin has not only corrupted that first family, that sin has actually spread to the entire society it's become pervasive in Genesis 6 what we see is that the moral fiber of the world is unraveling things have gotten really really bad and the reader as, as, as we go through this you start to wonder where is God in all this will he look on passively as his good creation is marred and distorted and destroyed by evil what about the promise What about the promise that through the offspring of Eve, one would come who would crush the head of the serpent? What about the few, the remnant, who who walk with him? How will they survive a world that is so plagued by evil? Not only do we see in Genesis 6 that mankind has become corrupt, but it's also made clear that God sees and that God is going to do something about it. We find in verses 1 through 8 of chapter 6, that judgment is planned for this world, this world that has become so corrupt. But we also see a hint that deliverance is possible. Judgment is planned, but deliverance is possible. Genesis 6-1, it says, "'When man began to multiply on the face of the land, "'and daughters were born to them, "'the sons of God saw that the daughters of man "'were attractive, and they took as their wives "'any that they chose. "'Then the Lord said, "'My spirit shall not abide in man forever, "'for he is flesh.'" His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And there's a lot of stuff in these eight verses, and we won't have time to deal with all the questions that arise In fact, some of the most confusing language in all the Bible is who are the sons of God and the daughters of man and trying to figure all that out. But I just want to kind of take the summary away from these eight verses. What we see here in verses one through eight is a worsening world. There's been a growth in population, but there's also been a growth in wickedness. We see this evidenced in the unbridled lust that these men had for the daughters of man that were attractive. And we see here that they took any whom they chose Unlike God's design for one man to take one woman, what we see here is men who are powerful, allowing the corrupt desires and the power that they had to lead them to oppress others, to take any multiple wives whom they chose. We have polygamy and harems starting here. We see here increasing human power. (coughs) These men are mighty. They have a combination of both physical and social power, and they're using that to achieve their own ends, despite what God's design is. They're using it for evil. This is a sad picture of, of, of evil and wickedness and corruption. And it's a sad picture. And we have to remember that this is not God's purpose for his world. We read in Habakkuk 2.14 that God's purpose, what he is planning to accomplish, is that the earth would be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's what God wants, that the earth would be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. But here we find that the earth is filled with corruption, with sin, with wickedness and evil. After describing the current state of things, how things are worsening, the scene shifts from not just telling us what was happening in the world, but but focusing on God, because he's really the main character in the next three chapters. First, we see what God saw. In verses five, it says, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart, was only evil continually. If you look down at verses 11 and 12, it says that the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. There's a contrast here to what we find in the creation account, isn't there? Remember, God made everything, and it says, and God saw all that he had made, and what did he say? That it was good, but now God looks out at his creation and he sees everything and it is corrupt. I'm reminded here of Psalm chapter 14, verse 2, where it says, The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. We may love the sentiment of Nelson Mandela's statement But the reality is human nature is corrupt. We are sinful. We don't have to be taught to hate. We don't have to be taught to be violent. We don't have to be taught to be selfish and to use others to profit at their expense. That comes naturally to us because of this sin nature that we carry. You know, many of you know what's coming next, the flood, this destruction of the world. And I think that sometimes we read too quickly past verse 5. And because of that, we struggle to understand why God would destroy everything. Look at verse 5 again. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. To be honest, I think that this is actually describing a situation that's worse than what we experience today. I mean, sin is pervasive today. Evil is pervasive today. But it's not true to say that every intention of man's heart is only evil continually. Things were worse then than they are now. I want you to imagine for a moment that ISIS rules the world. How different would things be if they controlled the entire globe? Imagine for a moment with me if the Axis powers had won World War II. How awful the world would be that we live in. Even more, imagine for a moment with me if every human being was a member of a competing drug cartel, all of us. Imagine the evil and the corruption, the violence and the wickedness that would dominate the world. That's what it looks like here in verse 5. Our world is wicked today, but by God's grace, it's not as bad as this describes. The wickedness was intensive. It says it's great. It was comprehensive. All, every, always. There's no exceptions here. It's pervasive, it's all the time, it's intentional. It's not good people trying hard and simply making mistakes. This is the intentions of their heart. This is willful and persistent and determined evil. That's what God sees. He sees all, and he sees all the time, and he sees all the way down into our minds, all the way down into our hearts. And the one who saw that everything was good in the beginning now looks down and sees this, that it's gone horribly wrong. Not only does the text tell us what God sees, it tells us what he felt in verse 6. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. It grieved him. Now we have to clarify here, you know, this language can be confusing, but God makes no mistakes. God is not saying here, I shouldn't have done what I did. He's not saying oops, I made a mistake. What God's doing is, is responding emotionally to what he's seeing and he's experiencing pain. Just like you and I may make decisions that we wish we didn't have to make and we feel sorry, but we know we did the right thing, but it still brings pain and grief and sorrow. That's what God is experiencing here. It's grieving him to see the unfolding of these events. It's not meaning that he changed his mind. It's simply saying that when God sees evil, when he sees violence and corruption, it pains him in his heart. It grieves him. Because he's holy, and he's loving, and he's good. And to see such wickedness, it, it pierces his heart. We see here in the text what God sees, what God felt, and then we find, in light of this, what God determines to do. Verse 7, the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Many times people will read through the story of the flood and they will question God for being heavy-handed. Isn't this too much? But again, remember the description of society. And you have to ask yourself the question, what kind of God would look down and see a society like this and not do something? Only a moral monster would sit back and be passive in the face of such pervasive violence. Really, the human race here is self-destructing. What God is doing here, it's kind of like the doctor who amputates a limb because it has gangrene. If you don't cut this off, it's going to kill you. The whole human race was at risk because of this evil. Even the promised line, even God's plan for redemption, his plan to bring a savior through the line of Seth, through the line of Noah, through the line of Abraham and David, ultimately Mary giving birth to the savior of the world, that was being threatened by this evil. If God doesn't do something... Everything is at risk. His original plan to dwell with his people in the place of blessing and enjoy relationship with them, all that is in jeopardy, and that is why God acts. That is why he does something. He determines to wipe out the human race and to destroy them. But look at verse 8. But, here's these gracious words, this gracious exception, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. God determines to destroy the world and everything in it with one exception, Noah. We were introduced to Noah at the end of chapter 5. He's the descendant of Seth, the bearer of the promise. And the word for favor here, when it says Noah found favor, that's the same Hebrew word that's often translated grace. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. God chooses to set his grace on this man. This grace is not earned or won. It's interesting, we'll, be, we'll find out more about Noah in a few minutes in verse eight, that he's righteous and blameless and walks with God. But the text tells us, first of all, that God sets his grace upon Noah. And then later it describes what Noah's life is like. God intends here to preserve a people, a remnant. And he chooses to extend this gracious purpose to and through the man, Noah. You know, oftentimes we wonder why God would destroy everyone. And we ask, how could God do that? But that's actually the wrong question, isn't it? It's the wrong question. We get to verse 8. We see that the real wonder here is that God would save anyone. Rather than ask, why would God kill everyone? We ask, why would God save anyone? What's so shocking here is not that God would destroy sinners. What's so shocking is that he would rescue some of them. Noah and his wife and his three sons and their wives. They will be rescued. The central truth that will carry us through the next three chapters is already present here: that sin brings divine judgment, and the only hope of deliverance is God's grace. That's what the story of the flood teaches us: that sin brings divine judgment, and the only hope of deliverance is God's grace. These themes play out through the rest of the narrative. Judgment has been planned. Deliverance, though, has also been hinted at. As we move on in chapter 6, we find that this judgment is now announced, and the deliverance is promised. We're introduced to Noah in verses 9 through 10, that he's a righteous man, he's blameless in his generation, that Noah walked with God, that he has three sons. We find that Noah here is unique. He's, He's unique in his generation There's a sharp contrast between him and everything else that God has seen in the earth. It doesn't mean that he's sinless, but it means that he is characterized by a righteous life, whereas everyone else is characterized by wickedness. This righteousness is seen in that he is blameless, that he walks with God. Do you guys remember that little statement, walks with God? It's the same words that described Enoch in the last last chapter, that he has a relationship with God. His righteousness is demonstrated throughout the rest of the story. Noah listens to the word of God. He obeys all the commands of God. When God speaks, Noah stops everything, everything that he's doing, and he restructures his whole life around the command of God. What a contrast to the people who are around him. After being introduced to Noah, we find that God speaks. He comes in verse 13 and initiates a conversation with Noah. As always in salvation, God is the initiator, isn't he? It's not like we take the first steps towards him. God takes a step towards us. He comes down and speaks to Noah, and he tells Noah what he's going to do, and he tells Noah why he's going to do it, and he tells Noah what Noah must do, and he tells Noah how to do it. In all this, we see that there is judgment coming, but there's also a rescue plan. There's a rescue plan in the works, and this is, again, evidence of God's grace and God's favor towards his people. You guys know the story. I'm sure it's familiar. Verse 13, he tells Noah, I've determined to make an end of all flesh for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark. And he goes on to give the instructions for that ark. And he says in verse 17, that he's going to bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But look at what he says in verse 18. But I will establish my covenant with you. You shall come on the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. God speaks. He tells Noah to build an ark. It's a massive wooden structure. If we were to kind of do the math here, it'd be about the size of one and a half football fields. It's a big boat. But there's three levels to this. Because judgment's going to come, God says, in the form of a flood. There is water coming. The king of creation is going to wield a weapon of water. Psalm 29.10 says that the Lord sits enthroned over the flood. Get that imagery in your mind. That the Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. He's going to use water to destroy the world. This water will bring death and destruction It will also wash the world of the evil and the wickedness that is so pervasive. But there is rescue for Noah. He, his family, and a pair of animals from every species will be rescued by boarding the ark. Why? Because God, in his grace, intends to establish a covenant with Noah. Massive statement in verse 18. If you underline in your Bible, you should underline, circle, highlight these words But I will establish my covenant with you. That's a promise. A promise of grace. Amidst tragedy and amidst judgment, we find grace and hope. The world is being judged, but Noah is the recipient of divine promise. This means that there's a purpose in God's rescue of Noah. There's a purpose. As Derek Kidner writes, Noah goes into the ark not as a mere survivor, but as a bearer of God's promise for a new age. You see, God's not abandoned his original plan for creation. He's going to preserve offspring. He will have image bearers who will rule over creation and walk in relationship with him. God is going to continue this plan through Noah. And how does Noah receive this word from the Lord? You know, it's interesting, Noah never speaks in this entire story. The text never tells us how he feels, if he's afraid, it never tells us what he wants simply shows us that he responds in faith. He's given detailed and explicit instructions about animals and materials and structure and dimensions, and he follows that all to a T. And in verse 22, it says that Noah did this. He did all that, the, that God commanded him. He responds in faith. Faith demonstrated in obedience. We find here, as we move on in chapter 7, that judgment is sent. The judgment that's been planned and it's been promised is now sent. And the deliverance that's been hinted at, the deliverance that has been promised is provided. God instructs them to board the ark in verse 1 of chapter 7. And he tells them that in seven days, in seven days the flood is going to start. And it would take them about seven days to get everybody loaded up. In, verses, in verse 1 he says, Go into the ark, you and all your household, For I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. He says in verse 4, In seven days I will send rain on the earth, 40 days and 40 nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out. Talk about washing, scrubbing it out, cleansing. Blot out from the face of the ground. And once again we find that Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. At the end of seven days, when they get all loaded up, we see down in verse 16, those that entered... Male and female of all flesh went in as God had commanded him. And then notice what God does. And the Lord shut him in. God himself shuts the door. And then everything starts, doesn't it? Everything starts. We find in verse 11, in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on on that day, it says, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth water coming up from the earth, oceanic tidal waves. And it says, And the windows of the heavens were opened, massive deluge, water from above, water from below. You know, it's interesting, as the flood happens, we see here a reversal of what happened at creation. Do you remember what God did on the second day of creation? He separated the waters above from the waters below. He created this expanse, right? and he gathered these waters into their places. God is separating and forming his creation before he fills it with living creatures. Here we see the actual reverse happening. These waters that had been separated, boom, now come back together. This is a picture of uncreation. It's a return to the chaos that existed before God formed and filled his world. God is not just punishing the wicked here in the flood. God's actually starting over. He's going back to square one, back to the beginning. The deluge is relentless. It rains for 40 days and 40 nights, and it brings comprehensive destruction. All outside the ark die. Look at this comprehensive language in verse 17 in chapter 7. It says, The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth. And the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh, notice the language here, all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything On the dry land, in whose in whose nostrils was the breath of life, died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground. Man and animals and creeping things of the birds of the heavens—they were blotted out from the earth. God had seen comprehensive wickedness, comprehensive and pervasive corruption and violence and evil, and it's met with comprehensive judgment. All outside the ark die. No exceptions. Then we see these amazing words in chapter 8, verse 1. But God remembered Noah. The one whom God promised to establish his covenant with, the one upon whom God had set his favor, the one to whom God had showed grace. God remembered Noah. These words are really at the literary center, at the very heart of this story. If you kind of diagram everything out from these three chapters, we see that this phrase, God remembered, is framed. It's framed by entering and exiting the ark. It's framed by the rising and the receding of the waters. Right in the middle is this shining statement of God's grace in action, that he remembered Noah. God's remembering indicates his love for Noah. Noah his faithfulness to Noah, and his perfect timing in rescuing Noah. It's not that God ever forgot about him. It's not that God said, oh yeah, I forgot about this guy over here, my friend Noah. No, God never forgot. He never lost track. To remember here shows that he acted in the perfect time to bring about his plan of redemption, to bring him, his plan of rescuing Noah to completion. The flood didn't last forever. We see here that God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark, and God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters here begin to subside. We've seen much language here that reminds us of creation, right? God seeing that things are good, but now seeing that things are evil. Instead of separating the waters, God bringing the waters back together. And remember what happened in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. It said that the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters In Hebrew, the word for spirit and the word for breath or wind is the same thing, ruach. Here we see that the wind blows. Just like the spirit hovered over the waters to begin this process of of forming and and organizing the chaos, we see here that God sends a wind to dry up the waters. The chaos will be brought back to order. The flood will be dried out. And we see that eventually the ark comes to rest in the mountains of Ararat in verse 4. In the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat, and the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains could be seen. It took a long time for that water to dry out, longer than it takes for your basement to dry out after a little mini flood, right? But it had taken a long time for the earth itself to dry out and for life to begin to grow once again. After more than a year on the ark, if we were to read through this whole chapter and add everything up, we see that eventually the waters have receded, the land dries out, plant life resumes, and the earth is ready once again to be inhabited. We find the story here of Noah sending out different birds, a raven, they can fly far and they would feast on the dead animals, and he had a lot to do. He didn't come back and then he sends out a dove and the dove comes back at first and then second time, seven days later, comes back with an olive branch saying, hey, there's plant life starting to grow and then eventually after sending out this dove a third time, he doesn't come back. He's found enough vegetation, trees to nest in, food to eat and no one knows that the earth is ready to be inhabited once again. As we move into chapter eight, verse 13, we see that the judgment is ended. It's ended and deliverance has been completed. See this in verses 13 through 19. In the 600, in the first year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing. That is with you of all flesh, birds and animals, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with them. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. If you ever go on a road trip with your kids, they ever ask, are we there yet? How long till we get there? Imagine being on this boat for over a year. But eventually, the time comes, and it's over. Judgment is over. The rescue is complete. Noah, his family, the animals, they can all exit, and they prepare to start a new life in a newly washed world. God had remembered. He had rescued. Grace had been extended to the man, Noah, and those who were with him. Now, there's a lot more to the Noah story, and we could have talked about even a lot more in these verses, and we'll see next week what happens as they exit the ark. But I want to just stop here and consider the significance of these events. It's a familiar story. For many of us, maybe it's almost too familiar, that it doesn't really strike us as it should. Let's consider the significance of these events for our understanding of who God is, of who we are, and what salvation really requires. As we read the story of the flood, it's impossible to ignore the sobering reality that the flood teaches us that sin, which is universal, brings divine judgment. And the scope of that judgment matches the scope of our sin. Universal sin brings universal judgment. God's holiness and justice cannot be denied. You might ask a question then this morning. If this is what God is like and if this is his attitude towards sin, why does so much evil abound in our world? Why are there these terrorist organizations? Why is there such things as racial animosity still at work in our culture? Why is it that I sin? And God seems sometimes to do nothing. Well, the Bible warns us that God's patience, get this, this is important. God's patience must never be mistaken for tolerance or apathy. Must never be mistaken for apathy. You see, the reality is, like Noah and everyone in his generation, we too face a coming global judgment. Matthew 24, verse 37, Jesus says, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. He says, just like the story of the flood, I'm using that to point you forward to something else that is coming, something that this flood is a picture of. He says, for as in those days, before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. Life goes on, day in, day out. Another day, another dollar. Kids grow up, they get old, and they have their own kids. Generations come and go. You know the cycle. They were eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And get this, they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. There is a global judgment that is coming. Life goes on for now, day in, day out as it has for years and years before us. But when Jesus returns, he will come to judge the earth. Judgment is coming. Now, some people find it hard to believe that this is really going to happen. Really? Jesus is really going to come back, and he's really going to judge the world? There's really going to be global judgment? It, it can be hard for us to fathom. But Peter warns us in 2 Peter verse, or chapter 3, verse 4, he says that scoffers will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. So some people are going to say, yeah, right. There's not global judgment coming. Look, natural process of life just keep going and going and going and going. It's been that way for a long time, and it's going to be that way for a long time. Peter says they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, And that by means of these, that water, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Peter says, don't doubt God. Take this warning seriously. He did it before and he's going to do it again. This is a real and serious thing, that judgment is coming. And just like in Noah's day, just like in Noah's day, the only way of escape is to be rescued by God. That's your only hope of escape, and it's my only hope of escape, and it's the only hope of escape for every person outside these walls today who lives today, who has lived before, and who will live tomorrow. There is only one way of escape. Our only hope of deliverance rests in the grace of God of God. It's only through his favor that you and I can escape the coming judgment. If God does not initiate, if God does not provide, if God does not act, we perish. Just like the people of old who were destroyed by the flood. But God has initiated, hasn't he? God has spoken. He has acted in the sending of his son, Jesus Christ. You see, the Noah story is not just intended to, like, scare us with the wrath of God. It's also to win us by showing us his mercy and grace that God makes a way of escape and that rescue is possible. In the flood, God pours out judgment on the wicked, but by his grace, he saves a remnant. He saves this group of people, and notice how he does it. How did God save Noah, his family, the animals? He saves this group of people through the obedience of one man, right, right? If Noah doesn't obey, if he goes, yeah, right, I've never seen a flood before, everybody dies. Noah's kids, their wives, his wife, all the animals. God rescued a remnant through the obedience of one man. Noah's family, in a sense, is saved, rescued, because of Noah, because of his righteousness, because of his obedience. And friends, this is a pattern. It's a pattern of the salvation that is to become. It's a pattern that is fulfilled by Christ because our salvation rests on Christ's righteousness. Our salvation rests on Christ's obedience, his death, and his resurrection. In Romans 5.19, it says, For as by the one man's disobedience, Adam, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Righteous. We have something in common with Noah in the sense that we're saved by God's unmerited grace. But we have a lot in common with Noah's family and those animals, don't we? In the sense that we are saved through the obedience and the righteousness of one. Judgment and salvation, these two themes that we find in the flood, they converge again in Scripture at the cross. We find shelter from divine judgment not in a wooden ark but at a wooden cross. It's not through the righteous Noah who walked with God. It's rather through the righteous Jesus who walked here as God. God in the flesh who came to save us, to rescue us. We are united with him through faith and we're considered part of his family. Noah's family was saved because they were with Noah. It doesn't say necessarily that God was pleased by their righteousness or that they were blameless, but they were with Noah, so they benefited from that. We are saved who are with Jesus. If you're with Jesus today, then you're saved. God's favor, God's love, God's blessing is extended to everyone who stands with Christ. So that raises the question, how do we be with Jesus? How do we make sure we're with him? How do we come to Christ? How can we be rescued? It's through faith. It's through faith in Christ. Hebrews 11.7 points out that it was faith that Noah actually possessed. It says, by faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Hebrews tells us that the righteousness Noah had was a received righteousness through faith. You and I must receive the righteousness that comes through faith. We must be united to Jesus through faith. And that's how we become part of his family. That's how, we be, that's how we stand with Jesus and experience rescue. Rather than climb on the ark, our rescue is found in coming to Christ, coming to the cross. In 1 Peter 3.20, Peter uses this analogy for salvation. He says, while the ark was being prepared, a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. And Peter writes that baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. And he's not saying that it's actually getting dunked under the water that saves you. And he clarifies this. He says, not as a removal of dirt from the body. He says, I'm not talking about getting wet. That's not what saves you. He says, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Faith. That's what baptism symbolizes. An appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Peter says, Peter says, just as they were saved and carried through the flood, our expression of faith, which is manifested in baptism, our faith in Christ, in his resurrection, his death, that is what now saves us. Salvation is found in relationship with God through faith in Christ. So that means there's some implications for us this morning. You know, this story is not just something that's for the coloring books, is it? This is not just a children's story. It's a story for all of humanity. This epic narrative of the flood is intended this morning to deepen our faith and to move us to worship and to energize our mission. Let's look at each each one of those three responses. First of all, faith. Friends, you this morning need to receive this truth personally, that rescue is found only through the grace of God, grace that has been shown through the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you have faith in Christ, you are saved. If you don't then you are in danger of experiencing the judgment that is to come. You must respond to this personally. If you want to escape the wrath that is coming, you must first of all repent of your sin. You cannot come to Jesus and pursue your sin at the same time. We must repent of our sin. Secondly, you must renounce self-effort. When you come to Christ, you're saying, I can't save myself. I need you to do it. Build me an ark. Rescue me. Because I'm helpless. Renounce self-effort. We don't earn rescue. We don't earn forgiveness and salvation by doing good works. We come as recipients to receive what only God can do for us. And then third, we must rely on Christ alone. Trust in him alone. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes and is justified. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. In verse 13, he says, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Have you responded to this offer of rescue? Have you placed your faith in Jesus? I invite you to do so this morning. Secondly, a second response is worship. If you've responded in faith to this offer of rescue, this should produce in our hearts worship, celebration, the singing and praying and and celebrating of truth. This grace has been extended to us. Think about it this morning. If you know Christ, if you're trusting in him, then God's favor has been set upon you. His grace has been extended to you. He's provided salvation for you. Growing up in in church, we used to sing this old song. The, The tune of it sounds kind of hokey now, maybe sometimes but it was wonderful grace of Jesus. And the line of the chorus says, wonderful, the matchless grace of Jesus, deeper than the mighty rolling sea. What a beautiful picture that God's grace is deeper than the flood. He can rescue us. As we'll see next week, as soon as Noah got off the ark, you know what the first thing he did was? He built an altar and sacrificed to the Lord. He worshiped. He worshiped we too will forever sing the praise of the Lamb who was slain because His grace is greater than the flood. His mercy can lift us from the fire. His love has rescued us from the wrath that is to come. And this, friends, should cause our hearts to sing. Should cause our hearts to sing. We respond in faith. We respond in worship. And lastly, mission. We have a mission. That this truth, that judgment is coming, but rescue is found through the gracious provision of God, This is a truth that must be proclaimed. So respond personally in faith. Let's respond corporately in worship. But we also have a public duty, a public obligation to proclaim the good news, that there's escape that's possible from the coming judgment. We have to be honest with people, though, that there's only one way to escape this judgment. In Acts 4, verse 12, it says, There is salvation, speaking of Christ, in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Guys, there was only one ark. Only the people on that boat lived. There's only one Jesus. And he is the way and the truth and the life. Jesus says, no one comes to the Father except through me. That's the only way people can be saved. And friends, we've been commissioned to go and tell the world this good news. God has chosen to use us as his ambassadors. He makes his appeal to the world through our lips and by our lives to tell them that Jesus saves. It's a simple message. This mission must always be front and center in our priorities, in our prayers, and it must be explicitly communicated in our proclamation. So let's respond to this truth. Let's not just think that this is a story for kids. No, this is a message of judgment and salvation. It tells us who our God is. He judges sin, but he loves sinners enough to provide a way for them to be rescued. And it sets up a pattern for us of the one who is to come, Jesus. One way of salvation. And salvation comes through the obedience and the righteousness of that one man, Jesus Christ. Let's respond to what we've seen of God today in personal faith, in corporate worship, in public mission, and let's trust His grace to rescue and redeem us as we seek to walk with Him by faith. Father in heaven, we are humbled this morning when we realize that we carry that same disease of sin in our own hearts. We live in a fallen, broken world, and we are fallen, broken people. And if that was all there was to the story, we would be without hope. But I thank you, Lord, that you love and you rescue fallen, broken people. You've chosen to set your grace upon us, to show us favor. You sent Jesus Christ to bear the punishment that we deserve in hanging on the cross and shedding his blood, he pays our debt. In rising again, he defeats our enemy death and makes it possible for us too to live forever with you in heaven. Lord, as we read this story of the flood, I pray that you would give us a new sense of urgency, realizing that there is another global judgment coming, that when Jesus returns, there is going to be a reckoning. Lord, I pray that if there's any in the room this morning who've never placed their faith and trust in Jesus, who've never climbed onto the ark, I pray that today they would repent of their sin and renounce their self-effort and rely completely and fully on you to save them. Lord, for those of us who know you, I pray that as we cling to you in faith, that we would be moved to worship and that you would energize us as we seek to carry out the mission you've given us to tell the world about not only the judgment that's coming, but the rescue that is available through Christ. We pray that you would use us, Lord, for your glory, to accomplish your purposes in us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.